children, Sunday school teachers, um, let me just pray a quick blessing over you guys as you uh, get dismissed. God, we thank you for entrusting uh, these little ones to our care as parents, as family members, as friends. As, um, we have a stake in these little ones' lives, God. May you bless them and may you specifically bless the leaders this morning as they pour into our children. We give you thanks for their efforts, often efforts that often go um, unseen but are seen by you, and I pray that you would bring refreshment and blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you guys are dismissed. You did great to hold out for that long. That was great. Braden, you're free. Go. Go. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, we come to the second last week in our series exploring the the great commandment of Jesus, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one that he is very quick to attach to it, make sure that by doing that, you love your neighbor as you would yourself. And we're kind of looking at that commandment through the lens, let me just pull it up here, of uh, spiritual love languages. I believe that one helpful way of thinking through this command is to recognize that there are kind of certain types of Christians, who experience God in distinct ways. And you can think about those ways along the parameters that Jesus outlines, that we connect to God, some of us primarily through the heart, which is kind of community. Uh, let's see if I can get my thing going here. Do I have it turned off, Marvin? This? No? Maybe? Should work. Okay, then, we'll just carry on. So I believe there are, oh, there we go. Want to try and track with me, Marvin? It's pretty simple. Just follow along. Um, I believe there are different types of Christians. They experience God in different ways. Heart, community, soul, primarily maybe through prayer and praise. Mind, primarily through the engagement of Scripture, theological growth, and strength, which we're looking at today, which is how we experience God um, through actively using our bodies to serve and bless other people. And so after today, we'll have worked through all of the types, and so what I'm planning to do next week is just to carve out some time to talk about some of the dynamics of how do we put all of this together to arrive at a, at a discipleship model that will help everybody in this room grow and engage their faith, hopefully in new ways, in interesting ways, in creative ways, in ways that stretch you, and, but, but really deepen your faith, draw you closer in your relationship with Christ. And what I'm also going to do is I'm also going to carve out some time for a little bit of Q&A. So if you've had questions maybe on a particular week or just overall, I will be kind of opening up maybe five to ten minutes and we'll just kind of have a bit of a dialogue where you could say, hey, I was confused week two you said this or we studied this passage but I don't really get it or how would this play out in this scenario in my life? So jot down your questions this week and bring them next week and we'll try and um, move through as many as we can. Okay, so let's talk about the strength type. This is the last type. Let's talk about the strength type. Strength types are those Christians whose experience of God is predominantly strengthened and mediated through actively serving and giving, literally using their strength, their kinesthetic energy to tangibly bless and help other people. So strength types, in my experience, are Christians who tend to focus on just pragmatic acts of service to other people, pragmatic acts of generosity and kindness, and they find these especially meaningful and rewarding. 
Strength types have a genuine understanding that the movement that James talks about in James chapter 1, the movement from being just a hearer of the word to a doer of the word is critical for Christians. And they model to all the other types what loving our neighbor looks like in very obvious and concrete ways, which is so, so helpful. Many strength types have difficulty getting anything out of Scripture unless it's tied directly to practical application. So whereas maybe a mind type might evaluate a Scripture study or a sermon or a conference through the lens of, what did I learn? Strength types are the people who at the end of it say, well, now what? What am I supposed to do? Like, what's the point? It's very frustrating sometimes. I've had to learn as a mind type. I, I kind of go through all the types when I'm writing a sermon, and I'm like, is there something here for everybody? And I've learned over the years, I've got to provide, like, this is now how you should live. Go into, here's a challenge, here's something you can do with this message right away. Because otherwise, mind types just get frustrated. And they're like, yab, 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 let's do something. What do you want me to do? So the progression for, for strength types is always from the conceptual to the concrete. They just are always looking to connect the dots and live out faith in a, in a very ground level way. And so within churches, it's not surprising that strength types are totally invaluable. They're kind of like that magical, in general, 20% that does 80% of the work. Um, they're passionate servers who rarely seek recognition or reward. Because for strength types, what I've found is that serving others is actually the reward. Like that is the reward. Just to be able to serve and to kind of exercise out their faith by helping other people, that's reward enough. And they experience tremendous blessing using their strength to help out, whether it's in ways big or ways small, whether it's upfront or very much in behind the scenes ways. Now, if a strength type doesn't grow beyond their type, and we've been talking about this with all the types, there's kind of a fault line that sometimes we think, oh, if I identify as a mind type like I do, that's just how God made me. I don't need to grow. But remember, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not or strength. Whatever comes easiest for you. So if strength types don't challenge themselves to grow heart, mind, and soul, then the stereotypical kind of do-gooder can play out. This can lead to a discipleship that is that can be divorced from any kind of theological depth, relational depth, or even contemplative depth. Without these other dimensions of loving God being explored, it can become very easy for strength types to define their spiritual health based on their level of activity and their busyness, even with very, very good things. And that's a, that's a, that's a dangerous kind of slippery slope. This can cause strength types to be well-intended often, but workaholics. Maybe not in their chosen vocation, but maybe certainly within the church. They're f they can be fueled by a very unhealthy urge to constantly busy themselves with many, many good and many, many godly things. And so I think of that story in the Gospels, uh, Luke 10, where Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's house. And Martha's that good example of a strength type who is so earnestly seeking to prepare a space for Jesus and his disciples to rest and to be refreshed but the lesson coming at the end of that passage is that, you know, um, sorry, uh, Mar Martha. Martha needs to learn to not just serve Jesus, which is strength. She needs to learn to be still before Jesus, which is soul, right? She needs to learn to learn from Jesus as a disciple. Kneeling at someone's feet is the posture of a disciple. That's what Martha needs to do. And she needs to learn to deepen her relationship with him, heart. How many people here would identify 
as a strength type. You'd say, this is definitely the way I predominantly experience it. There you go, Rob. We got it, finally, last but not least. Yeah, great. And I want to say, as I've said to all the types, we need you in this church. The body of Christ needs you. Um, You guys are the muscle that brings to expression our intentions and plans. Without you, our community would not have the impact that it has a lot of the time because your efforts, whether they're big or small, they're often the means through which God directly blesses so many people within this church and so many people outside of these walls. We love you. We value you. We especially value the strength types in our midst who help their pastor build sheds. Carl Jurgen, God bless you guys. We spent, this is a real strength week for me. I built a shed on Friday. And by built a shed, I mean Carl and Jurgen built a shed. And I supplied coffee and refreshments and took some pictures. But it still kind of counts a little bit. But they're great. And that was really, really, really fun. That was my sermon prep for this week, was building, doing something very much outside of my type. Uh, When I think of strength types in the Bible, my mind automatically almost always goes to the Apostle James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He writes the book called James. A big part of his writing focuses on pushing Christians to not just talk about loving God, but doing something with it, connecting their intentions and their convictions to real concrete acts of love and mercy and justice and service. James kind of, uh, the whole book of James, some people have summarized with the line, like, faith without works is dead. And that comes out of James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. So that's what we're going to look at. I'm going to read through it, and you can follow along if you have a Bible. It's also going to be on the screen here in a second. And then I'm going to walk through it and just explain some of the dynamics here because I think what James is challenging us with is really, really interesting and really, really powerful. So James chapter 2, verses 14 to uh, 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the, belie- even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, foolish person, that apart from works, sorry, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So Paul, or sorry, James starts this part in verse 14 with this big open, open question, rhetorical question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I want to serve the Lord, but they don't have works. And works is just a... Um, uh, the word there in scripture is just generically referring to what we would just think of as 
deeds of charity and goodness and justice. Might be, might be big ones, but often can be small ones, but just fundamental goodness, serving and caring for people around us. Can that faith save him? And the rhetorical answer that James is driving at is no. Words are worthless in general if they don't lead to action. And therefore, faith is useless if it's nothing more than just a matter of words. Deeds and good works reveal the genuineness of one's words. Deeds and good works reveal the genuineness of your convictions and your ideas and your beliefs about the way things should be. Then in verses 15 to 17, James puts everybody um, imaginatively in a scenario. He's like, imagine you were naked and hungry and you were outside this church and it was November, it was pretty, pretty cold and you were suffering pretty terribly and someone from Nelson Covenant Church walks by you and they're like, oh, you know what? Be well fed, be warmed, God bless. And they walked away. What, what's going through your head? I'll tell you what's not going through your head. What's not going through your head as you sit there shivering naked and hungry is thinking, what a sincere and deep and genuine faith that person has. I'm really, oh, that's wonderful. Wow. God, God bless you. God bless you, sir. You're not thinking that. You're thinking, thanks, thanks kind of for nothing. Because your words can't clothe me. And your words won't fill my stomach. And James is saying, the church has to be very careful to not be a people who are not backing up what we say with practical acts of service and care and love for people, especially for the marginalized and the poor. James is challenging the church to see that if you talk about your faith without expressing it in um, obvious ways, help, truly helpful ways to the neighbors around you, then the best thing you could say about such a faith is that it's dead. He doesn't say it's non-existent, and that's an interesting point. He could have used that word. He doesn't. He says, your faith is just dead. It's like a body slumped over that has no spirit. It's, it's useless. It's not helpful to anybody. Then he continues and he says, well, maybe like faith and works are two kind of different things. So let me play devil's advocate. Some people might say, well, some people are gifted to do works and some people are gifted to do faith. So works isn't for everybody. Like I have faith, but so I don't need, I don't feel compelled to like do all this stuff that you're talking about. And he says, okay, show me your faith without any works. Like show me, show me the, give me the evidence of your faith without referring to any of these works. And again, the point is, well, you couldn't. Because if I said to you, I love Jesus, I'm serious about Jesus, I want to do all these things, I'm, I, I want to be sincere in my faith, I want to be genuine, I surrender my life to Christ, I could shoot off my mouth of all kinds of great-sounding things. And if someone said, prove it, the only way that I could actually prove it and establish it is not by offering you more words. Oh, no, it's really true. You'd have to look at my life and I'd have to say, see, I'm not trying to brag, but these are, I do these things and the reason why I do these things is because I want to bring honor to Jesus. That my, my deeds reflect, they establish that um, the Christian faith for me isn't just words. It's something substantial. And this is a faith that bleeds into every area of my life. And so James is saying, you know, to the people who say, well, I just have faith, I don't need deeds, he's saying, well, that doesn't make any sense because I can show you my faith by showing you my deeds and make that connection. But if you don't have deeds, you don't have anything um, to hold these things together. 
And you may be in danger of having a dead faith where it's all words, it's all ideas, but there's nothing concrete there. Then in verse 19, this is great. Uh, as you read James, if you, read, if you t- take the time and read, it's a very short book, and you can read it. I was, uh, Rob and I were running this week, and we're talk- he was talking about his love for James, and I was like, it kind of occurred to me, I'm like, of all the New Testament writers, James is like, um, he's a precursor to Twitter. He says a lot of things in 140 characters or less. He's not really fancy. It's blur- kind of blunt force spiritual trauma. He just calls it like it is. And he has this great line in verse 19 where he says, okay, some people think it's like maybe a difference. And then maybe other people are thinking, well, but I've got like good theology. Like I'm rock solid. Like I do have a faith. Don't tell me that because I don't serve and help people, I don't have a faith. I can tell you all the things I believe. You know, he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. That's great. James says, God is one is the fundamental tenet of the Jewish worldview. James is writing to Jewish people who become Christians. So they're like, how dare you accuse us of not having a faith? I can tell you, we can start with the Shema and say, the Lord, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James says, yeah, even the demons believe that. And they shudder at that. They recognize the gravity of what that means. And they don't obey God, but they at least shudder in reverence. And James, in a not-so-subtle way, is kind of saying, oh, you, you have correct theology. You know a lot of things about God. Congratulations, you're qualified now to be a demon. The, the ideas only get you so far. Demons have exceptional theology. They know truths about God that, because they have seen things that we have not seen this side of eternity. And James very subversively is saying, you can know many true things about God you can know many. You, you can put people under the table in discussions about what it means to worship and serve God faithfully, but if you are not living out those truths lovingly in embodied ways, real salt of the earth ways, kind of the inference is what, what separates you from a demon? Because they know it too. They're just choosing to live it out. They're choosing to not live it in accordance with the truth, just in a different way. James continues in verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac? This is a story in the Old Testament. Very happens very, very early in the book of Genesis. God gives Abraham a son. He says, through the son, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to undo the curse of sin that happened in the garden. But after a time... This, this son of promise, Isaac, grows a little bit, and then God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. I want you to give him up, which is completely counterintuitive and makes no sense because all of God's promises are located in this one person, and now God's asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. But Abraham trusts God, and he follows through in the preparation and almost execution of the sacrifice right up until the moment where he's holding back his son's uh, uh, jaw, and he would have slit his throat, like you'd slit a lamb, and, and, and an angel of the Lord stays his hand. He says, stop. He stops him. Right up until that point, Abraham's willing to go through with it because he trusts God and he's obedient. And James says, remember that story, Israel? How, how, did, how was Abraham justified? Was it because of his faith or because of his almost sacrifice of Isaac, his willingness to sacrifice Isaac? And what he's trying to push these new believers in Christ to think through is to think, well, yeah, it doesn't make sense to think about them as really that separate because the fact that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son reveals the depth of his faith. 
It shows that for Abraham, it wasn't just, yeah, I just trust God. Well, in bringing Isaac all the way up to the top of the mountain and tying him down and getting ready to offer him up to God, which was a very common practice in the ancient world. So this is not a strange request. Lots of pagan cultures in that time encouraged child sacrifice. So when Abraham, coming from a pagan background, this God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Abraham says, well, everything belongs to this God, so... I guess he's allowed to ask for, this is normal. And, and James says, you see, his faith and his works were, were together. His faith was active along with his works, verse 22. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And then here, here's the line that gives everybody trouble, verse 24. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And that's kind of the theological hand grenade that James throws out. But we know he throws it out, and we know it's intentionally um, meant to be disturbing because James and Paul know each other. They're at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where they establish, what is the gospel? We are justified before God, not on the basis of any good things we do, but simply because of Christ. It's by faith alone. And you're like, yeah, I kind of thought, isn't that the point of Christianity? That is the point of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is not, if you do enough good works, God will love you. If you do enough good works, then maybe you will um, procure God's favor in your life. And then maybe if you've done, if, if, at least if the good outweighs the bad in the afterlife, you can go and be with God forever. That is not the gospel of Christianity. That's in some way, shape, or form, almost the shape of every other religion or philosophy. Christianity is something very different. It says... You can't actually redeem yourself before God. You are lost and broken and sinful, but God has not abandoned you. He has made a way through what Jesus has done. But that way is completely separate from what you can do. So God doesn't save you because you're good enough. You started going to church and God says, well, that's, that's, that's a person who's worthy of being saved. Anybody who comes to Christ and admits they're a sinner and receives forgiveness of sin is then justified before God. Paul makes that very clear in Ephesians 2.9. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. This has nothing to do with you. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. It has nothing to do with that so that no one could boast. No one, no Christian can say, well, God loves me. I'm a part of God's family because of the, no. The only reason why you're a Christian is because you've been permitted the opportunity to receive Christ's forgiveness. It's all because of what Jesus has done. So James says a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Paul says a person is justified not by anything they do, but by faith alone, which is about as clear a contradiction, it seems like, in the scriptures you could possibly get. And yet, here's, here's the turn. The word justified, dekeosun, means to make right, to establish something right, to make it right, or to be made right. But then, like now, our word justified can also mean to prove something is true or to prove something is right. So one um, pastor that I was reading this week had a good example. He said, if you were to say an outlandish statement to me, and I said to you, you're going to have to justify that statement to me. What am I saying? What I'm not saying is make it, make it true. Make that statement true. That's not the way I'm using justified there. It doesn't make sense there. What I'm saying is 
you're going to have to prove that statement to me. You're going to have to justify what you just said. You threw out a lot of facts and opinions. You're going to have to justify that statement. When, um, sorry, last place here. So when Paul says that we're justified by faith, he means that before we come to God, there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. It is simply a gift of grace that we respond to. It's only faith that justifies us before God into a relationship with God. After we become Christians, our works do justify us. They do prove that our faith in God is sincere, but who do they prove it to? What's that? The world, other people. Our works, after we become Christians, justify our faith to people around us. When James says we're justified by works, he's saying it's our good deeds that prove to other people that we're sincere. Maybe not perfect, but that we're sincerely trying to love God. Abraham proved to those around him, his servants, that he was right with God because he willingly took his son to the altar of sacrifice. And this is what James is driving at. He's saying, the only way that you can demonstrate and prove that you love God to people who who are watching you and don't know God is not by talking more about God. It's them seeing you live for God. It's seeing you clothe the naked and reach out to the vulnerable and deliver um, um, people caught in, in slavery and being charitable to your neighbor, and being, showing graciousness and care and generosity. He also uh, references Rahab. He says, In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them on another way. These Israelite spies come into the city. They're trying to scope it out. And Rahab says, We've heard what God has done. I'm a true believer. Here, you can hide um, in my brothel. That's a little bit awkward. But anyways, the point is, She says, I'm a sincere believer, but she justified, she proved that that was true by at great risk to herself saying to the spies, you can come and have shelter. And then when the authorities came around, because they had heard that there were spies in in the city, she says, no, they're not here. They went, you know, they kind of went a different way. So she proved to those spies and to Israel's people that her faith was real. She could have said, oh, I believe in God, but I can't do this for you, whatever. She proved it, though. Her works validated it. So in this passage, James, in a very punchy, a very powerful way, is making the same point that the Apostle John makes in 1 John 3.18. He says, children, let's not love in word or in tongue, but in deeds and in truth. It is so easy to love with words. It is so much harder to love with deeds and in truth. Because when we love in deed and in truth, John and Paul and James, everyone would agree on this. We're we're glorifying God and we're establishing and proving to other people. Again, not that we're perfect, but that our faith actually means something. It's not a dead faith. It's alive. And we're sincere. And we want to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're learning what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, it is helpful to pause for a moment And just think about the two examples James gives. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, Rahab's sheltering of the spies. There are a lot of examples of good works in the Old Testament that James could have drawn on. Tons of them. 
hey, I can think about this person and this person and this person. He goes right to Abraham, goes right to Rahab. Why does he do that? Well, I think there's a really important point here. When James is talking about good works, that does cover everything that we would just think of as caring and supporting other people, tangible acts of service. But the emphasis that he's driving at here isn't what we would think of as just like doing your good deed for the day, like doing nice things. Works biblically isn't just being a nice person, like not stealing, helping old ladies across the street, which I, I totally believe in, by the way. I'm just saying it's, it's more than that. It's not just like, just kind of like c- civic niceness. What was the work of Abraham? What to Abraham's servants and before all of the land, what did Abraham do that, that people said, oh, this guy's a friend of God. This guy knows God. He offered up his son. He offered up what was most valuable to him, his one and only son. It says in Genesis 22 that when God said, I want you to sacrifice your son, the next day it says Abraham rose early the next morning. Didn't even wait. Didn't even hesitate. You are my God. Everything that I have is yours. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. Hebrew says it occurred to Abraham, well, if I kill my son, he's God, so he's probably going to raise him from the dead. I guess this is a test. So Abraham goes, he obeys. He gives, he gives up this, this huge act of obedience, tremendously self-sacrificial, very hard for us to wrap our heads and minds around what would have been going through Abraham's heart. What was the work of Rahab? She reaches out and took into her care those who were needy and helpless and vulnerable at massive risk to herself. That was not an easy thing to do. The authorities find her or catch her in her lie, she's dead. She has no, she's, a, she's a prostitute. She has no political connections. She has no social standings. She's as low on the ancient world's um, moral pecking orders you can get. And yet she says, I'm trusting this new God that I've come to believe in. And if you are part of his plan, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to try. These Abraham, Rahab, these are not easy, convenient, good deeds. These were courageous, self-sacrificing, God-glorifying acts. And understanding this adds a bit of a twist to James's main point. Faith without courageous, self-sacrificing Bold acts of obedience and faithfulness is dead. When James is talking about faith and works, hear that when you think of works. Hear that James is saying, we're talking about, I want the emphasis to be on big acts of self-sacrifice for the good of the world, for the glory of God. This is usually the point when I'm writing my message where I stop and I think to myself, okay, do I actually even want that kind of faith? That would be a dangerous thing to pray for, right? God, give me that kind of faith. So you kind of sit there for a while and you really think about it and the consequences of what it would mean to say, I don't want you to just save me into a new kind of life from a little bit, of, little bit of a better person, God. I want you to save me into a kind of walk with you where I just would, I'd be willing to go there if, if it had to be. I'd be willing to expend huge amounts of time, energy, and money in service of you and service of other people, maybe if it cost me a lot of those things. Do you want that kind of life? Do you want a Christian life that is characterized not by words and flapping lips and tongues and saying the right things, but a a life where people look around you and say, 
I don't know if I believe in God, but I'm pretty sure if there is a God, that person's a friend of God. Like they, there's something really real. They're just pouring themselves out in love to this community, to our school, in, to their family, um, to the vulnerable within our community. Where do you get that kind of life? Where do you get that kind of faith? The Bible says the gospel's where you get that kind of faith. The gospel, which is a Greek word that means good news, the good news of Christianity is the announcement that God himself has not just loved us in word and tongue, but he did it in deed and in truth. The gospel is the news that as Christians, we can joyfully give up what is most dear to us because God gave up what was most dear to him. See, God may have called Abraham to offer up his son, but before Abraham could go through with the execution, God stayed his hand. Abraham, stop, I don't want you to do this. But when God offered up his one and only son on the cross, no one stayed the hand of the executioner. God let it happen. And the, good, the gospel is good news that we can know God's love and mercy we can know his forgiveness no matter what our past is. Think of Rahab. That's intentionally why James uses Rahab as an example. She reached out to those who were needy and helpless and risked their life, and she risked her life in the process. But think about Jesus. Jesus reached out to the needy and the weak and the helpless, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And so you and I, in Christ, our guilt, our shame, our sin has been covered. It's been hidden away. Not by the words of Rahab, they're not here, but by Jesus' words, it is finished. It's finished. And now we step into a new kind of life, but a life that's focused on showing the world God's love and mercy through good works. The gospel of Christianity is that because of what Jesus has done, we are freed not to do good works out of an anxiety that, will God love me if I do enough of these things? No, we're free from all that. God has shown his love for us. God has justified us because of what Christ has done. Now we're free to go into the world and creatively love and bless our neighbor and show them in real ways that God loves and cares for them. Here's a few ways to take action today. Number one, this is, a, this, is a dangerous pro, this is a dangerous thing to do. So don't get mad at me if you actually go through with this and God does something with it. <laughs> get alone, open your Bible, take some time to pray, and just sit with the question for a little bit. Think about your time, your energy, and your money. And say, God, where do you want me to courageously, self-sacrificially serve other people through these things? I'm willing to give up what's most precious to me. I don't know which of those is most precious to you, I'm just saying, sit with it and, and, and wait. Maybe God will give you an impression. Maybe it won't happen in the moment. You're just going to go on your week. But I'm confident if you ask God, he's going to put something on your heart. And then my encouragement, if you have the, uh, my encouragement is to push through the fear and do what Abraham did. Early the next morning, get up and just do it. Just do it. God, where are you asking me? And maybe we could be praying that for our church as well. God, where are you asking us to do that? Where are you asking us as a church to prove that we love God to all these people around who think, well, if there is a God, he's distant, he's probably angry, he's vengeful, he's just, whatever they have in their head. How, how are you calling us to love and serve and give in a way that has them say, mm, I don't know if I believe in this God stuff, the Jesus thing's kind of weird. I, don't, I doubt I'd ever go to church, but if I did ever go to church, I'm, that's probably the kind of church that I'd want to go to. 
because they justify their love for God with acts that are, I can't deny the acts. They're loving, they're gracious. There's also a super cool opportunity for some people in our church to take action right, day, uh, right today, to use your strength to serve and bless someone in this community. Blair, can I have you come up and just share that opportunity? I, uh, I shared this with the young adults and, and the youth group through Facebook, but uh, we can obviously open up to anybody who wants to be involved. But there was a, a family who was a part of the church for a while and uh, has kind of fallen away before even I got here. But they're in need of, of some major yard cleanup today, and they reached out to, uh, to Carrie to ask if, or Carrie found out about this need, and we want to be able to provide for that. So at 2 o'clock, we're going to meet there. If you want to know the address, you can come talk to me afterwards. And we're going to go there, and we're just going to bless them. We're going to go there and uh, serve and help them in their time mm. of need. That's awesome. So there's a great, easy way right today where you can say, I'm going to do this. Maybe I'm not a strength type. This doesn't come naturally to me. Talking to the wrong guy. I helped build a shed on Friday. So I know sometimes you've got to go grinch your grain to learn to love God in new ways. In John chapter 1, it says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The good news of the Bible is that God justified. He proved his love for us by displaying it over and over again in many real, tangible, concrete acts of sacrificial giving and serving. But he did it in one supreme act when he went to the cross. And if we're born again by the Spirit of God, and if we're growing in worshipful recognition of the glory of that love, then our lives will display his love towards others in concrete ways. We will self-sacrifice, give, and serve by his grace, for his glory. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. And, I, and as I talk with people, I think, I sense that's the kind of church we want to become. So let's commit to that in prayer. God, would you, for those of us f- uh, for whom our faith is, is, is dead, it's easy for us to spout words, but um, we're not connecting it to action. Would you help us to repent? Would you, even this week, give us one opportunity, one way to selflessly bless and care for those around us in a way that is genuinely self-sacrificial? Grow us up as a church to be a community that justifies carrying the name of Jesus, not because we're perfect, but because we are sincerely looking to carry out this great commandment, to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength in our neighbor as ourselves. Do whatever you need to do in my life, in our life collectively, to make that happen, God. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.